Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Back on the Hidden Yardage Podcast, right here on the Blog and the Boys Podcast Network. I'm Mark Lane. You can follow me on Twitter at the Real Mark Lane, and I'm always joined by Sean Martin, who you can follow on Twitter at Sean Martin NFL. Sean, how's it going? Hey, great to be back with you, Mark. In the spirit of this being the you know one of the solar parts of the off season, but we still have some great topics planned for y'all. If you'll indulge me for just a second, I'm going to turn this into. One of the best game shows that you've ever been a part of. I got two questions for you. One, you're guaranteed to get right. And then if you get the second one right, you win. You want to play? Yeah, sure. All right. Question one. What's your birthday? Like the date end of you? January 5th, 1988. All right. Now, if you on the spot without, you know, radio silence here, can add exactly 10,000 days to that and tell me what your 10,000th day on earth was based on what your birthday date was there, you win this entire game. Uh, 10,000. So like the date that that lands on, yeah. Oh, the date, the date. Um, it would have been March fifteenth, um, nineteen ninety nine. Now I should have been able to should have actually checked this before going forward. But the reason I bring this up is because we all, as Cowboys fans, get subjected to those. Oh, it's been this long since they've been in a championship game. This long since the Super Bowl drought, and we usually just score right past them. Me and you even had a little fun with the most recent one that I saw before this one, which is that Pokemon one. But I saw one that said it had been exactly 10,000 days since the Cowboys won the Super Bowl. And I would have gone my 10,000. And as we know, I was born on the day of the last Super Bowl. So it kind of stopped me in my tracks for a second. I'm like, hey, how many people actually get to realize they're living their 10,000 day? And if it wasn't for this dumb meme, I uh, I won't have as well. So that one kind of shook me up for a quick second. I'm like, hey, 10,000 seems like kind of a cool milestone to celebrate. I don't know if we'll make it mainstream enough to where people are throwing, you know, birthday style parties for their 10,000 day. I actually spent it at a concert, which is pretty cool. But yeah, I would have uh, never realized that last Friday was my 10,000 day, if not for a Cowboys meme about the Super Bowl streak that we all love to see so much. Which I think is kind of trash because, I mean, it's like there's business days and there's calendar days, so you can tell your bank all you want. Oh, hey, it's been 30 days. Man, get out of here. It's only been about 20 business days. And that's how I look at that kind of stuff, regardless of who it's about, is really you're going to count off-season days. I mean, for a sport that yeah. has, like, you can have a baby by the end of the off-season. That's how long it is. I mean, come on. And to tie the contra back to sports, because that's what we like to do here to bring those worlds together. It was a Brit Floyd show, which is an incredible tribute band to Pink Floyd. Can't say enough good things about them. But of course, they have the song uh, Money, which is well known off of the Dark Side of the Moon album. And of course, in that song, there's the line, I think I'll buy me a football team. It was only for a Flash second, so I could be very wrong about this, but on the video board that had all the visual effects throughout the show, 
you know, they can change it based on where they're playing. And I guess for Austin, they were deciding if it was more of a Texans or a Cowboys crowd or what footage they could use. But I'm pretty sure it was a quick flash of a uh, Andre Johnson highlight when they when they played that. So they decided to go throwback Texans. If I saw it right, again, it was such a quick flash. But I'm pretty sure the, the visual aid for the line, going to buy myself a football team in the Pink Floyd song Money, was a, an Andre Johnson highlight. And it did get a pretty good reception from the crowd because Austin's a pretty good mix of Cowboys and Texans fans. So there must have been some Texans fans in the audience that enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, I, I can't think of a number 80 for the Cowboys in that particular garb that you could mistake for being the Houston Texans, you know? So, I mean, you would have known if it was Michael Irvin or Des Bryant. Yeah, it wasn't a, you know an immediate obvious cowboy pick either, but it was a lot of smoke and other lights and different visual appeals uh, throughout the show. I had a family member I texted beforehand because I know he saw Floyd at uh, the Bears Stadium, Soldier Field, back in the 70s, and still to this day talks about how that was one of the best concerts he's ever been to. And I texted him, I'm like, hey, I'm checking out this band tonight. I know it's probably not going to be as good as the Floyd show you still talk about all the time, but I'm looking forward to it. And he said he had seen that specific cover band, the one I saw, twice, and said it was pretty close to the actual full Floyd experience he got. So as soon as I heard that, I was pretty excited, and yeah, it lived up to the hype. Uh, as a really, really incredible experience. And again, it was on my 10,000th day. So, you know, again, I don't know if we can mainstream uh, people celebrating their 10,000th day, but besides maybe a Cowboys game, I don't know. I can't think of a place I'd rather be than a concert. So to tie all those things together, wasn't bad. And shout out to the guy who, uh, before the show, I was having a drink out in the little patio and we were wearing the same dark side of the moon suit, me and this older gentleman. And, uh, his, people he was with called me over and said, oh, we got to take a picture together. You guys are wearing the same suit. So we grabbed a quick picture together and that was cool as well. Yeah. So it was an old guy and a young guy. And one of the young guys that the Dallas Cowboys are counting on to really break out in his second season is Sam Williams, second round defensive end from Ole Miss from last year. Um, to me, it seems like it's, it, to me, it seems like he's what Michael Parsons could have been in a regular world. In other words, Michael Parsons just showed up. Boom. He's a superstar right out of the gate. But I kind of expected Michael Parsons to kind of feel his way through the defense and through the NFL. And then in his second year, the conversation would be about Michael Parsons breakout and I think for Sam Williams that's where some of the conversation is for him but you know it's not as pronounced because of all of the superstars on the defense already that kind of take the attention like Parsons like Trayvon Diggs so then you still have Demarcus Lawrence so Sam Williams kind of you know, talk of his breakout doesn't get as much attention as it should. But what do you think it would take for Sam Williams to have a breakout year this year? Well, I think the first thing is just, you know, continuing to earn the snaps that he certainly did a great job of in his rookie year. We know that the Cowboys' interest in him is tied to Dan Quinn and how great of a thing it is when Quinn, you know, specifically wants to get his hands on these players. He's a 
players first coach for the entirety of the defense, but when he really locks on to someone, especially these defensive linemen, seems to be a specialty, of course, that he wants to work with and develop. You know, we're even hearing that from UDFA Isaiah Land as far as the guys interested in. When Dan Quinn wants a defensive lineman, he sees to it that he works with him to get him on the field. And Williams did enough of that. Even given you know what was stacked against him last year, he played the fifth most defensive end snaps behind only Parsons, Demarcus Lawrence, Dante Fowler, and Dorrance Armstrong. So I guess you can look at it as you know a bit of bad news if you wanted to at the fact that all of those defensive ends are still here. Of course, we don't want Parsons to go anywhere. We don't want Demarcus Lawrence to be going anywhere just yet. It was really you know and Dorrance Armstrong as well is an up and coming player right there next to Sam Williams. But it was a Dante Fowler thing where you know maybe now this year we, we can finally talk about. Williams being that next replacement if they don't bring Fowler back for a third year. But continuing to earn those snaps, his versatility will be the biggest asset for him there. He's the guy that can rush from the outside. He can rush from the inside as well. His run defense really stood out last year. He was second on the team, only behind Parsons and tackles for loss with 10. So, you know, if this team is actually as serious as they've talked all offseason and proved in the draft with the drafting of Mozzie Smith in the first round, they really want to be a stout run defense. Another way they can prove that is by getting Sam Williams on the field, and I think he's ready for that. I think some of those, you know, speed defensive end plays where you saw Dante Fowler kind of losing the edge at times. You saw, you know, this team struggling to keep contain when they were just putting their ears back and trying to go on the pass rush. And I don't think they're going to do any loss of that. They still want to get after the quarterback, and Parsons will be the biggest factor there. But they also want to value guys that can get on the field and defend the run, set that edge, and rush from the interior as well, where Williams could even benefit from lining up next to a guy like Mozzie Smith and having that pass rush advantage, the same type of type of advantage that we're looking for a guy like Oso Digizua to take advantage of or Neville Gallimore. He could be in a mix there too. So all throughout this depth chart, there is good competition for Williams to potentially hold him down just a little bit, but I think he proved enough to where he's going to see valuable snaps. And as long as he sees those snaps in a variety of different alignments, that can really bring out his best skills and it's going to be a big year too for him. So it sounds like... Um the breakout would be in areas that only pro football focus could tell you that was good, like run to support and just, you know, those stats that don't really show up in the conventional box score. Yeah. Things like setting the edge defensively and, you know, interior pressures and things like that. Again, with the definite defense on, I don't know how much we're going to have to talk about pressures. You know, they, their goal should certainly be to finish enough of those plays. The the days of the Rod Marinelli defense where all we heard about was pressures are kind of behind us. It's like, well, pressures are great, but we're only talking about them because you're not actually finishing plays and getting the quarterback on the ground, which leads, as we know, basically can almost be counted as a turnover. Sometimes, you know, the drives that have a sack on them that end in points are so low. So analytically, you can count those as nearly as valuable as a play as a turnover, which the Cowboys in their own right are great at forcing in the secondary too. So, so many ways that Sam Williams can make an impact. He has the favor of this coach to get all the snaps to do so. But I think the most consistent way that he'll see the field to be more of a household name this year is that run defense. Yeah, and I only brought up pro football focus just to it just illustrate it would take some sort of PR campaign, if you will, or in, not a campaign, but just a highlighting from mass media that – Williams is doing a good job because part of the reason why Marcus Spears was considered a bust was he was prior to all the 
analytics and the deep dives and the stats that we have now to really measure what a run-stopping defensive end can do, what a uh, space-eater defensive end in a 3-4 could do. And so Spears was just considered a bust because he wasn't getting a whole bunch of sacks like DeMarcus Ware was. So I think for Sam Williams, he will have that benefit of if he really goes out and does his job, and I think that's what Dan Quinn does well with this defense, is he has a role for everybody. So even though it looks like, oh, wow, Dante Fowler is a progress stopper, he has a role for him that he had in mind that he wants to, you know, tap into that maybe he saw when he had him with Atlanta. Same thing with Sam Williams. He has an idea of what he wants to do. And if Sam Williams just does it, I mean, then that, there you go, Sam Williams is breaking out. And we know how hard it is to maintain, you know, really deep and talented position groups in this league. You know, I know that kind of gets overshadowed by the bigger phrasing of, like, it's just hard to maintain good teams. But really, that, like, the more specific way we should talk about that is it's hard to maintain dominant positional units. You know, the way teams need to allocate cap space, they can't tie it all up in one position group. So almost, no matter where Sam Williams you know, does find more of that permanent home as far as what his best role is and his best position to line up at, as much as that can be narrowed down in a very multiple type of Dan Quinn defense. But wherever he finds the closest thing to a home, I mean, it's it's a good path for him to be on. He's still on his rookie contract. That's a great asset to have. And you can find a player at almost any other position in this front seven that's going to have their contract coming up before him or it's just a veteran getting up there in age to where you can say, well, if he turns out to be this guy's replacement or this guy's future replacement, it makes a lot of sense for this team. So the upside is really just starting to be tapped into for Williams, but it's something that can be realized, you know, as soon as this year, as far as already getting off to a good start in year one in a somewhat limited amount of snaps and still having all those tackles for us and still really showing that, you know, he has a plan when he goes into pass rush reps and knowing what he's doing out there. Well, an initial second round pick of the Dan Quinn era Kelvin Joseph, uh, he has been working at safety. Now, I, uh, Mark Lane from Universe 832 has seen this play out before with <laughs> lengthy, rangy, Kentucky cornerbacks that come into the league, and then, oh, by year three, they get moved to safety. And so with Calvin Joseph, I got to ask, do you think that this is a last-ditch move to try to get Calvin Joseph to be to, to, co- to, to, to come out and really just, you know, be a, st- a pillar on defense? Because he is on special teams. I mean, John Fossil likes him. That can only go so far. But, you know, you don't spend second-round picks on core special teams. For example, Matt Slater, um, who's with the Patriots, uh, who's really, you know, the special teams ace of the past 15 years, he's a fifth-round pick from 08. He wasn't a second-rounder. So that's what I'm asking, Sean, is do you think that 
moving, getting Kelvin Joseph work at safety is a last-ditch move. In some ways, yeah, I think it is. You know, Mike McCarthy did praise the move so far as far as how he's playing without the pads on, though. So just how much we evaluate basketball and grass. I think we've already had that conversation. But McCarthy did say it's the best stretch since he's been here playing some safety as well as some nickel. You know, when you look at his college tape, and here we are talking about, what, a year three player, and we're going back to his college tape to see where his potential is. That's never a good sign as far as he should have some, you know, bona fide NFL tape at this point. But when you look at his NFL tape where he was, you know, the Jaguars game is the first thing that comes to mind last year. Where he gets caught flat-footed having to turn and chase that route, and that's not really one of his strengths. So then you compare that to the college tape, and the interceptions were the big thing of him and the potential to be a ball hawk type of takeaway corner. And there was a lot of, you know, being able to read plays in front of him, which I think at safety, of course, it gives him an opportunity to do, and even there at nickel. But, you know, it's kind of a catch-22 thing because – we just talked about a front seven that's kind of log-jammed as far as depth and what everybody's role is, but how that's a good thing just because you need attrition, you know, in the trenches and those types of positions and rotation-wise, it makes more sense. I'd almost go in the secondary, you know, you need some of that versatility as well, but you need, needs to be more defined as far as your roles. So I do think it's last ditch as far as just saying, well, at least we got them to play nickel and safety snaps. Say, so, well, you better have a clear path of, what that's going to look like. Cause we all expect, of course, Trayvon Diggs and Stefan Gilmore to be your outside corners. That leaves a lot of snaps for Deron Bland on the inside where he's been great. Then you have Jordan Lewis in there. Now we know about this kind of ambiguous middle of the field, you know, defender type look that Quinn deploys where it's any type of mix of Donovan Wilson and Jaron Coase. And now third round pick of this year, DeMarvian Overson. And, you know, you can mix it all up in there. Jabril Cox off to a little bit of a good start for OTA. So, yeah, you could throw in as many names in the middle of the field as you want and just say, oh, it's great. Give us all the athletes, throw them all out there. But it works because they're tight in their communication. It works because players develop that chemistry of being on the field at the same time. And so I don't think that, you know, jo- Joseph is just this immediate arc to get thrown in that mix. And, oh, he'll be just as good as the guys who have been doing it since really year one under Quinn here. So can he find some snaps there? Sure. He still has that second round pedigree where teams could do everything they can outside the special teams to find a role for him. I do think you know, he can make a couple of splash plays with the, with the ball being in front of him, coming down to safety, delivering some hits as well. But I just don't know how many snaps do I have for him to sew that off. And if he's not playing a lot of snaps week in and week out, the, you know, the consistency comes into question and his chance for development comes into question once the practices during the season don't look as intense as they will be, you know, throughout training camp and things like that. So this is a last-ditch move as far as I look at it. But it is one that could have some potential because we've seen him at cornerback out there on an island and hasn't exactly been pretty at all times. So if he can make some plays coming downhill on the ball in the situational role at safety, you know, that's what his role could be. And it's not something to get super excited about, but it's still a role for a second-round player that was looking like a bust prior to this. I also think it adds to his profile as being game day versatile, because that's something that Mike McCarthy talks about, is when you have your game day 45, you know, you're considering your versatility uh, just because of the attrition that happens throughout the game. So if he's able to play safety and then you can play him in cornerback, in a pinch. But that's the thing is he's got to be really good 
at safety. He's going to be fine on special teams. I mean, that, that's given. That would qualify him for a uniform, let's say, on most game days. But to really solidify to be a 17-game guy, uh, he's going to have to show something at safety because I think they know in a pinch, in a bind, he can play cornerback and just get you to the end of the game. You know, so I I I, I do think it kind of hinges on his ability to play safety. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, you're really starting to talk about miss territory. We've even already seen Eric Scott Jr., you know, getting whatever you can consider first-team reps and OTAs. Much of that is just, you know, Trayvon Diggs being on ice right now and Gilmore not doing a ton yet. But, of course, we expect that to change. But you, know, you do need depth at cornerback and maybe a first glance on the Steph chart. You don't see a whole lot of it, which is a good news for Kelvin Joseph. I know Israel McClamu can come down and play some corners. So there is some hidden depth if you look at, you know, other positions. But just – straight across the board at cornerback. You don't see a ton of it. I guess that depends on your opinion on Nason Wright as well. But it gets deeper, like I said, the more you look at it, if you start to consider some of these safeties. And then also, you know, I think at, at least at the moment, and we'll see how much this changes for better or worse to, throughout his first training camp with the team. But we have to keep an eye on Eric Scott Jr. He's not just a six-round pick. He's a six-round pick that they traded a future pick for. So clearly they like him and they see something in him. And at a position group where you're going to be tested every single year as far as the numbers that you have, Eric Scott Jr. could uh, find himself a role here. You know, those are just some things that happen throughout OTAs. Um, Was there anything that was a concern for you when, you know, just an off-season concern, but it got better over the course of OTAs. I'm going to go where I have one for both sides of the ball. I'm going to go start with Jalen Tolbert's development. You know, it was another, like it was the Brandon Cooks trade happened pretty early in the off season. So it was like, okay, great. We're not going to be sold on just Tolbert's year two development after an invisible year one as the saving grace for this wide receiver group. It's, they actually legitimately did something. It keeps them open in the draft, although we would have liked to maybe see them address it higher in the draft. The way the board fell, it didn't work out. They didn't touch it until the seventh round. And so it's like by the end of it, you're saying, okay, here we go with D- Jalen Tolbert again. Cooks is going to be nice, but is that quite enough to where we should, you know, we soon have to fall into the same trap of hoping that Jalen Tolbert can sow something and he hasn't sown is going to be, but then he gets off to a good start with OTAs and we directly hear about Brandon Cooks being a part of that development for him. The veteran Cooks kind of taking Jalen Tolbert under his, win, under his wing and working with him on routes and showing different things like that. So couldn't have worked out better as far as the immediate return on Cooks and how that's helping a guy like Tolbert, who the Cowboys still certainly want to get something out of. He's only going into year two. So as a whole for the receiver room, it's pointing up right now because of the Brandon Cooks move and individually what he means as far as just being a pass catcher and still being a viable player at this point in his career, but then also what he's meaning for some of these younger guys trying to make the team, Jalen Tolbert included. And then defensively, how can you forget the Parsons position change thing? Hearing that he's going to be a defensive end, it's like, well, great, what do we do at linebacker? Are we going to have enough? And then they draft over so it's like, oh, we're going to be trusting a third round pick now to be the same as Parsons. That doesn't make sense. And then Quinn puts a quick end to that. And 
where he would have person to still get to be the same old player, jack of all trades, maybe a heightened emphasis on pass rush. That's what we've seen from him all throughout his career already anyway. So the Parsons position change there really wasn't was something that's gotten better because he's still going to be the same old Micah Parsons that we all love to watch on Sundays. For me, uh, the offense would be the play calling, uh, just how it was going to work between Mike McCarthy and uh, Dak Prescott. McCarthy... Basically, when he talked about how play calling is a competitive thing for him, and it's him versus the other guy, and that he has to really build on that now during OTAs. It's not just something that he goes into each game week and kind of wings it or something like that. Uh, Also... Just the nature of how the play calls are being relayed to Dak. Uh, How Dak likes to hear the play calls. uh, How they're keeping the same language from the Kellen Moore, Jason Garrett era. to kind of blend in with what they're doing. So... You really got to take a look at just the nuts and bolts of what they're doing to get everybody on the same page with regards to the play calling because it just kind of sounded like Mike McCarthy was just going to take a hold of the you know, um, Waffle House menu and just start calling plays <laughs> off of it. But there was a little more detail. So that was good. We used to call uh, Ben McAdoo of the Giants. I'm sure you remember him. We used to call his giant play card a, a Waffle House menu or a New Jersey diner menu. Might be better off and uh, with all the sticky notes on it and little extra annotations. That was our joke about his play calling seat when he was struggling there at the end of Eli Manning's career. Well, you know he was calling Taylor Ham and not pork roll off of it. <laughs> uh, and then the tip, yeah, my defense and – I hate to be the uh, netball on grass guy, but, um, you know, the defensive interior. Uh, they clarified what Mozzie Smith, what they expect of him, just kind of talked about their expectations and how they're going to deploy the defensive interior and utilize something that's been a real sieve and a weakness for him since 2020 and try to cultivate that and turn it into a strength. So those were my two areas of, uh, you know, off-season concern that got better throughout OTAs and minicamp. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to see what Mozzie Smith can mean for these other interior pass rushers too, though. We already mentioned Williams off the top. I think he's someone that can benefit from lining up inside next to Smith, but you know, if you get a next step from Oso Digizua or Neville Gallimore or even a Quentin Bohanna, I mean, just how much better can this defense be? I mean, I know this is the off season and we should be, you know, we always talk about his upside and hope for these things and it doesn't always work out as good as we can envision it while we're just waiting on having football right now. But man, the potential for this defense to just be so well-rounded and really not, you know, have a weakness out there at all. 
because of if you add an interior pass rush, and as you mentioned, how long it's been since they've consistently had that, plus the run defense being the number one thing with Smith and then the other moves they've made to sew up the run defense. I mean, it's just a defense that has a chance to be just something we have not seen in Dallas in so, so long. It already has been under Quinn, but if you get a good interior pass rush where quarterbacks are feeling it from in their face and they're getting Parsons off the edge, and then, you know, in obvious rundowns, I can give you a different awkward or stack you up against a run. It just, the level that this defense could be at, I think Cowboys fans haven't even quite realized because they just, we, we've already kind of fallen asleep at the wheel when it comes to Quinn. It's the way the NFL goes. Everything is new and shiny, gets the attention. We forget, you know, just how good it's been under Quinn almost at times. It's already just a given like, oh yeah, we have this guy, so the defense is good. And it is good. And it could be great. I think it could be really great if you if uh, the Mozzie Smith pick turns out to help a guy like Oso Digizuru, Gallimore, any of the above to really have an interior pass rush to go with all these edge rushers. And I think we'll be talking about an almost unstoppable defense if all of those things come together. Yeah, and it's got to come together this year because you could have Mozzie Smith, oh, come into his own after Dan Quinn's gone. You know what I mean? After Trayvon Diggs, they couldn't retain him because the contract got too big. That type of stuff. So if Mozzie Smith has a Michael Parsons type of rookie year, I don't mean really approaching defensive rookie, I mean player of the year the way Michael Parsons did. I mean just, well, even like a Tyler Smith type of rookie year. I think that right. that may be enough to, I mean, really do some damage. Well, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, that's a great comparison of Tyler Smith as far as, you know, even playing a bit of a position that he wasn't necessarily expected to play to. With Mozzie, that won't be, you know, as noticeable. Yeah, he'll line up in slightly different stances and such. So that can count as a position scenes. But, you know, it's not like we need to make note of every different type of defensive stance he's going to line up in. We know his home is somewhere along the interior. You won't see him out there on the edge too much or anything like that. But on the interior, trying to do what he does best and, what that can mean for the rest of this defense is playing fast, being able to react, playing with the speed that they have at all three levels is really going to be a joy to watch. Let's go ahead and get to, uh, I guess this is going to be a uh, an annual off-season tradition where Sean and I go over our favorite... We kind of put a new spin on it this yeah, year. Yeah, our you know? favorite Pat Phrases in football and you know it's there those phrases that everybody uses they always talk about them they always use them as descriptors there's nothing else no synonyms just these particular phrases <laughs> and we'll go ahead and kick it off with sean with uh just give me one of your favorite pat phrases and then we'll come back to me and we'll talk about it and then we'll go back to you. Yeah, I like the term hat on a hat. It's kind of a theme of like describing things in, in a way that it's not actually happening. Like I think that's the theme of some of my other ones that you'll you'll see. Like taking something that clearly already has a name, which would be you know, like the helmet in this case. And then in football, we just feel the need to change stuff and like have different terms. But they usually afford it better and it makes it more fun. So instead of saying helmet on a helmet, I really like that the accepted term for like a well-blocked play or uh, executed blocking scheme is hat on a hat. It just kind of makes it seem like a little bit less like athletic or skillful than it really is. And, you know, in a way it like takes away from how impressive it is when you're actually watching the play, but 
then it doesn't at the same time because it's just like you know how athletic it actually is. So you're watching like this Flames and Pell lineman slam into each other and the announcers just casually like, oh yeah, they did a good job getting a, getting a hat on a hat, not appreciating, you know, how difficult it is for a right guard to actually go take a 300-pound defensive tackle and move him across the field. And we just ball that term up and, and that athletic feet up into this term, hat on a hat. So I've always enjoyed that one to describe some trench play. Yeah, because they're helmets and it's probably face mask to face mask. It's not even like hats, like the crown of the hat touching each other. Yeah, like hat on a hat could just be like you're a bunch of dudes in cowboy hats running into each other at a rodeo or something, but instead it's a, it's a football term that comes up pretty quite often. So, All right, I got one. It's take what the defense gives you. What if the defense is just giving you a one-yard dump off to your running back? I mean, come on. You got to drive the ball down the field, don't you? I mean, you can't just take what the defense gives you. It just sounds so passive. Yeah, it does. You know, it's one of those, like, it can be a positive term. It can be looked at as a good thing if a quarterback is consistently doing that. You know, if the defense is really allowing them to fit some tight window throws and things like that. But, yeah, the, the idea that, like, there's always just an open opposite against these NFL defenses and that they don't spend all week, like, completely scheming and knowing everything you're going to do on Sundays anyway, it kind of gets taken away. And the fact that if you just blanket term it with, Something like take what the defense gives you. All right. What's one? What's another one you got? I like the term ball hawk. Again, I think this is someone uh, we got a Twitter submission on this as well. We asked the fans for submissions. But again, this also fits my theme of like taking something that isn't the real term and being able to wrap it up uh, in that. Another one that I couldn't find like a specific term for. So included in this one is I was like when a defensive lineman bats a ball down, the announcer says uh, he stuck his paw up there. Like using animal references is just awesome. I mean, the NFL athleticism is off the charts. Like what we see out there is hard to describe. So if you need animal terms to get it done, I'm a fan of that. So ball hawks in the secondary, defensive linemen being bears are sticking their paws up. Couldn't be a bigger fan of all of that. So ball hawk in the secondary is a good one for me. I think it's funny when they refer to defensive linemen as having a paw. You know, they never say a receiver – or even a running back, or even on a hmm. defense, a cornerback got his paw in there. No, it's always either a defensive lineman or a linebacker. Yeah, it's always, you know, those interior guys. It's always like the rotational defensive tackle, too. Like, it's, you know, your first strike. If your first team is out there, I feel like that term doesn't get thrown out. But then it's like some no names that the announcer has to look down for 10 minutes to find the name of who makes the play. And then it's like, oh, we got his paw up there while you're searching for the name on your call chart to figure out who actually just batted it. And, it's a guy who saves the game because he just deflected a field goal or something. I like this one from Tom Ryle, who you can hear on Riled Up on the Blog and the Boys podcast network, Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher. What you subscribe to for it, Dave comes out on Thursdays. But uh, Tom, he, he put generational player, you know, the 43 or so every year. Yeah, that one rolls right into one of my favorite like draft time traditions, which is like right before that cram part, you know, the week going into the draft, where it's just guaranteed that you know you could be picking twenty six, let's say, like the Cowboys, and there's a list of forty players out there that are guaranteed not to make it. It's like, oh, you're not gonna have a chance at player X, Y, Z, and you go all the way down through to forty of them. And it's like, well, actually, if we do some basic fifth grade math and 
I might not be able to tell you what my 10,000 day on 04 is off the top of my head, but I can tell you that one of these 40 players is going to make it to pick 26. So that's one of my favorite draft things, and that goes right hand in hand with the amount of general, generational players that we actually see. Oh, I like this one. Uh, this is a very blue-collar team. Yeah, I still don't know quite what that one means. I mean, I get what blue-collar means, but like, what does that mean in the, in the realm of describing a whole team with it? Uh, yeah, because, I mean... For goodness sakes, it's a sport where people hit each other and everyone's got an offensive line and a defensive line. You know what I mean? Like, it'd be one thing if, oh, well, the uh, 1980s San Francisco 49ers, they just played offense and didn't even have an offensive line. Wow. They're really finesse football. Um, it's Come on. It blue collar. I mean, and with the amount of money these guys are making these days, I mean, it just sounds crazy. I think the last true blue-collar team was the Dayton Triangles and whatever their last season was. Yeah, the Dayton Triangles. That, if you want a blue-collar team, that is where it's at. And their only Hall of Famer, by the way, was Greasy Neal. <laughs> what? <laughs> and he ended up coaching... The Philadelphia Eagles, too. Yeah, so he was an end and a baseball player, Mark, and he played for the uh, the Reds, so another historic franchise in baseball, and along with, of course, the Dayton Triangles and the Philadelphia Phillies as well. So uh, it's always cool reading about, you know, multi-sport athletes from that era because only the modern-day ones still get talked about is how much of a feat it was. It's like, well, hey, there were guys who did it. I mean, his coaching career, too, he was with the Triangles, Washington and Jefferson, the Ironton Tanks, Coach the Yale, so yeah, this guy was just a, a lifer in the sporting world to a, a legend that deserves to be honored on our podcast. Yeah, yeah, more so than going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, another one that I like is high upside because it always sounds like the guy, like his gluteus maximi, are in the middle of his shoulder blades or something. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of like, I don't want to say a lazy term that gets thrown around, but like, you know, as someone like myself who does draft reports and things like that, you know, you, you can end up doing so many of them that eventually you're just going to throw around the same terms without even, you know, realizing if it's the right fit or not. So high upside gets thrown around probably more than that should. It's just kind of that generic. Like if you think the player's good, if, if you think he's good all ass in this league, more than a couple of years above the average, then yeah, he's high upside. And but when you do that, the term loses some meaning and becomes a bit cliched, which is what we're covering here. So, yeah, that one gets thrown around a bit. I also like quietly athletic because, again, just like the average fan might not quite realize just how athletic you have to be to even sniff an NFL field. Like, to even get a UDFA invite, you have to be, like, the top 5% of just athletes in general. And so quietly athletic, what does that mean? We're talking about the best athletes in the world. Another too. one that I like is uh, due diligence. We're going to do our due diligence. Just once, I'd like a team to say, you know what? We're going to wing it. We kind of know. You know, we've looked around. <laughs> we've read even y'all's blogs and everything. We've read the newspapers and watched some YouTube and a little bit of Twitter highlights. Yeah, we kind of know. Yeah, to that tune, I shared something on Twitter this week of like the DeAndre Hopkins visits and every team reporter that he visited with. 
putting out basically the same generic, like, oh, DeAndre Hopkins is off the town. We're told it went well. And somebody was like, just once I want someone to report that the visit didn't go well. Like the player, you know, didn't pay for his meal or dinner or whatever. The steak was overcooked. He hated it. He couldn't wait to get out of town. Like we never hear about a player visit going poorly. It's always just generic. It went well. And then you cross your fingers and hope that he signs with your team. Yeah, I'd like to hear about that. He walked out in the middle at the end of the dinner and he didn't tip. I mean, that'd be a good one. Or he harassed the uh, wait staff and asked for three napkins, not four, <laughs> not two, three. And he didn't like the lighting on his entree. I mean, come on. Yeah, we need that to break up the generic go to visit went well, especially what we know, like some of the more famous stories in Cowboys history are like, you know, Jerry and the whole uh, Tom Landry thing, you know, going to steakhouses and restaurants. So like, Football does have a history of like things happening, you know, outside of the team facility that actually make it public, and we hear about it as far as restaurants and clubs and any number of things. Probably more than other sports, actually. I can't think of you know examples like that in baseball or too much the NBA. So it's going to be part of the world of sport. And yeah, let's hear about the bad stuff that happens and not just the good. Um, the iron sharpens iron. That's one that gets thrown about, and it just sounds nuts because. What if it's actually, um, you know, tinfoil against tinfoil or iron against tinfoil? I mean, it's, on some of these practices, these training camp practices across the league, when an all-pro is going against a third-teamer, you tell me that's iron sharpens iron? And shout out to, like, my sophomore year uh, history teacher, I think, but – when we were doing a different presentation on like the industrial revolution and different metals and iron is actually a somewhat brittle like metal to work with unless it's you know molded in a certain way or like you know it could be used of course in modern architecture to you know do almost anything but just like pure iron and then you get to smack it against other iron or try to sharpen other iron it actually wouldn't have a good result iron is pretty uh, brittle when not worked with properly and can break and you know steel is the is the better metal that we should be referring to as far as something that just is more rigid at all times and holds up so iron is not the best metal that we should be using to talk about in football terms who knew that sean martin was a smelter right here on the hidden yardage <laughs> podcast uh let's see you got oh bang bang play yeah that's that should be reserved that should be reserved for like a baseball you know play at first that's all that's the only time i want to hear that you can't say instantaneous collision or concurrent action i mean Bang, bang, play. I I mean, it sounds like they're bam, bam from Flintstones or something. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's just a baseball thing through and through for me. If if I hear bang, bang, play, the only thing I'm possibly thinking of is a guy sliding in the home or a guy trying to leg out a hit the first. So we, we can make a separation on that one. Of course, baseball is the only sport we have right now. I hinted at last week that by the time our next episode came out, being this one that we might be done with both the NBA finals and Stanley Cup finals. Sure enough, that happened. They both series ended in the next game. So, uh, yeah, I hope our listeners are able to get by on just baseball for a bit. Yeah, I didn't know that either one of the NBA finals or NHL finals, I mean, Stanley Cup finals, sorry, ended because uh, no one compared it to the Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl drought. (laughs) Right. Well, I guess when the... Denver Nuggets won their first ever championship, and then the Vegas Golden Knights also won their first ever, and they've barely been in the league, you know, more than a couple of years. They made the Cup final the very first year as an expansion team, which is a huge deal. 
and now he a couple of weeks, a couple of years later, actually win it. So, you know, the joke is probably there for the taking, at least if the Golden Knights in the NHL to be like, oh, they, you know, didn't exist before the Cowboys last made a championship game, and now they have a cup or whatever. But when it's teams that are new to winning, it might be harder to to make that joke. But for the Knights, yeah, I'm surprised nobody jumped on the hole. They didn't even exist the last time the Cowboys did this, and now they have a cup. Yeah. Well, don't worry. Those will be plentiful. All right, let's go ahead and get to the Cowboys' birthdays. On Tuesday, Jeremy Parnell turns 37 years old. He's with the team from 2010 to 2014. He was a swing tackle, and he was really key in 2014 because Doug Free, right tackle, missed a couple of games. Parnell was there to just keep the uh, trucks on moving as DeMarco Murray uh, secured the NFL rushing championship that year. On Wednesday, Dwayne Thomas turned 76 years old. He's only with the team two years, 70 to 71, but he was a dang good running back and helped them win Super Bowl six. And you can really watch his interview on America's game for the uh, 71 Cowboys. He really gets into what life was like as a Cowboy back in the early 70s. (laughs) And then uh, touchdown Tony Hill uh, turned 67 on Friday. He's with the Cowboys from 77 to 86. Those are your Cowboys birthdays, Sean. Now you got to tell us where Blytheville, Arkansas is. That's where Jeremy Parnell is from. And when we have a Jersey native on the list, we usually try to figure out where in town that is. So where is uh, Blytheville, Arkansas? Well, um, it's called Blytheville, and it's up in the northeast part of the state, up near that little, I don't know, vestigial boot that Missouri has. So it's up in the northeast part of the state. And uh, not a lot goes on there. I mean, it's so hard to get to because of the lack of interstates in Arkansas uh, that we just really have, us people in the northwest part of the state, we have to drive through so many mountains and two-lane roads. You know, even though they're federal highways or state highways, it still takes you like four hours to get over there. So, we don't really hang out with those people much. Yeah, I just looked it up on the map. It is isn't kind of an interesting spot as far as being close to the border of, you know, a couple other states as you, uh, as you go through Arkansas. Then. I mean, it's really more like Missouri or... It's like um, right... Tennessee. It's really kind of like Memphis, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, it might as well be in Tennessee, which isn't too bad i mean it doesn't seem like it's a horrible drive to uh to get from there to nashville let's see so yeah it's kind of like know. hoboken okay may as well be new york yeah, three, and a, three and a half hours outside nashville so not a uh maybe a little bit of a hidden gem in arkansas as far as a place to hang out and then get into nashville from i know that uh can't find a pork roll sandwich there you can only find it in new jersey you can find good barbecue though in Blytheville. i can guarantee you that well, that's what I was going to ask, like, what dish I could probably find there. But, yeah, barbecue would uh, be the way to go. I'm sure about that. So I'm a little bit overdue to head back to one of these legit Texas barbecue places and uh, have another good sit-down barbecue meal. It's been a couple of weeks or months or so. So I'll be sure to do that and report back. But, yeah, hard to beat anything in the South for barbecue. But the more remote locations, sometimes the better. And 
Whitefield seems to have the right mix of being remote, but also being next to other states that are known for barbecue, like Tennessee and the rest of Arkansas. I like that, too. Yep. All right. You've been listening to the Hidden Yardage podcast. Follow Sean on Twitter at Sean Martin NFL. Follow me at The Real Mark Lane and subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher. So there it is. 